We're so glad that you guys are uh, here and decided to join us. If this is your first time uh, with us, or maybe you've been here from the very beginning, we consider it our mission here as this ministry to just affirm uh, and agree with Jesus that you are infinitely valuable. No matter where you are, no matter what part of your life's journey you find yourself on today, we want to agree with Jesus that you're beautiful and uh, sacred and infinitely valuable. And so we're just so glad that you guys are here. Um, We want this place to be an encouraging place, not a criticizing place. Uh, Everyone's journey is unique and delicate and sacred, I believe. Uh, And so we just want to be a a voice that helps you along the way. So thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I have entitled my message tonight, well, this is a quick service, so we don't have a lot of time to dilly-dally, as you guys know. I've entitled my uh, my sermon, The Need to Be Known. We're talking about the need to be known. We're going to be talking uh, from John chapter 4, of course, a very well-known story in the Bible of uh, the woman at the well. So we're going to talk about that, but before we do that, I want to kind of introduce the idea. I want to tell you a a quick story. When I was 19, something like that, 19 years old, how many years would that be? 15 years ago. 14. I think last, a a week ago, I said my age wrong. Am I the only guy who does that? I said it, I said I was one year older than I really was. But anyways, I went to, uh, I haven't done a lot of mission trips, but I did, I, go, I went to uh, Russia uh, for Bible college. So we went to St. Petersburg and we went to Moscow. So we were these guys, we were, you know, like tattooed and we thought we were so cool. We we're going to go turn Russia upside down, you know, infiltrate them. We were like going to be so hip. But anyways, we're talking to the, our, our kind of our liaison in Russia and they said, okay, here's what we, we need you to know. This is very important that when you're out in Russia and you're just in like a bus or a subway or, you know, in a market or something, they said, don't look at people in their eye. And we were like, that's ridiculous. We're missionaries. How are we supposed to not see people, look at people in the eye? We're hoping to talk to people. And they said, that's just the culture here is that people in these uh, third world countries, they don't oftentimes look at each other. And we also learned that if you put your foot up and they look and they can see the bottom of your foot, it's like giving them the finger. <sighs> yeah, so... Yeah, you got to be careful. But anyways, we thought that was so weird uh, that we wouldn't want to look at anybody, look, look directly in their faces. We thought that was odd. But it, it, it's actually true. When we would go, we'd go on these subways, and they are so cram-packed. They're so full. Like, there are people you're holding on. There are people, like, up in your armpits, rubbing against your butt. It's very awkward because we're so crammed in there with these strangers. But you'd think we would kind of look at each other and laugh or something like that. But it's none of that. It's just everyone just looked down, and they don't, like, they don't make eye contact with anybody, and we were so shocked by that, and I think we were kind of weird Westerners because we were loud, and we were talking to each other really loud in this bus of like 200 people, but it's just silent. Nobody's saying anything. And so I just thought it was kind of an interesting thought is that, that people were like crammed in uh, into all of these different social uh, institutions and they have these kind of micro, tiny little interactions, maybe buying something or sharing a bus or, you know, whatever it is. And they never really have any sort of connection with the people that are right next to them. So even though they're standing there, and maybe even their arm is touching another person, uh, there's not any this sense of connection. And I think it's kind of an interesting picture, in my opinion, uh, to the world of today. Because even though we would come and even come into this room or live our life, whatever it is, that we would come and we'd even be happy to see the people in the room and see the people that are in our life. But there's this certain level of, I think, just guardedness 
that is inherent to just the way that we are. You know, uh, and it's like, it's nice, we're, we're happy to see people, but we never get past like this superficial kind of level uh, to where it's really meaningful. And as a pastor who's pretty determined to be somewhat open and vulnerable and honest, it's kind of depressing to me sometimes when I see how afraid we are all the time of, of showing other people uh, who the real us is. We're fearful of letting our real selves show. And nowhere is that more true. Nowhere is that more true than church. I think it's one of the reasons that people don't really like church. You know what I mean? They think, well, that's where the fake people go to be fake. And the only way that they're going to like me or accept me is if I come in and act like something that I'm not really, you know, in my regular life. I just got to put on my Sunday best so that people will accept me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's an amazing guy. He was, I quote him way too much. He's a German pastor. Of course, he was killed by the Nazis. I talked about him one time not long ago, but he has this quote about kind of like the lies that we tell each other in the Christian community. I updated the language a little bit just in a few places so you'd understand, but here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He who is alone with his sin is completely alone. It may be that Christians, talking about us, even with corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still suffer the agony of loneliness. I don't know if that resonates with anybody. True fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. Uh, So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from their fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered in their midst. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy, forgetting the fact that we are all, of course, sinners. And I think it's just um, so amazing that we live and we have all of these different relationships, all of us. You know, we've got friends and we've got family and we've got pastors and we've got coworkers. And if you're anything like me, I... I'm just thinking about this. It's so amazingly true is that when I go and I hang out with people, I'm in a way I'm deciding which me I'm bringing to the table today. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like I'm just asking questions like, okay, are these the type of people? Am I being, am I being uh, pastor David right now? Or may, maybe you don't identify with that. So am I being church Hannah right now? Or am I being just regular Hannah? Am I, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, it, maybe you drink. Are you thinking like, well, what do I drink? Do I drink with these people? Do I not drink with these people? If you drink, maybe asking yourself this, like what kind of language do I use when I'm around this particular group of people? Am I the only one? Am I the only one that has like 17,000 different Davids? There's a thousand of me, depending on who I'm hanging out with. Maybe uh, this is, I think this is really an interesting one. I ask myself, is this somebody who I talk about politics with? I think just whatever it is, you know, are you thinking like, I don't know. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I I find it very awkward. But somebody, you you just are hanging out with a friend, maybe someone at church, and they just start talking about politics, and they're assuming that you agree with them, like that you see politics exactly. And so they're just ranting about this one person, how they're just so insane and so outrageous and stupid, and you're like, wow, this is really awkward. And you're trying to decide how much of you you're about to disclose in this particular situation. Usually just laugh or whatever because you don't want to show that much of you. But I wonder if you just feel this. There's just this pressure 
to always be slightly chameleon-ish to fit whatever setting you find yourself in. Uh, next slide. I thought this is so true. I wonder if you identify with this. If certain people in my life had access to certain parts of my personality, I know for a fact they'd reject me. Am I the only one? I, like I, I even believe, I think there's even a lot of people that would consider me pastor. If it is everything that I am and do and, you know, all of the skeletons in my closet. Like, I think that there was a lot of people who couldn't handle the real David. And maybe I'm the only one. But I think there's just a lot of people that end up living their lives wearing different faces uh, in different social groups. And very few people end up seeing, like, the real you. Like, who you just honestly are when you're not thinking about where you, where you are and who you're talking to. Uh, and I bet the married people could even agree with this. I even think that that's true with your spouse. Like my wife, Jordan, we share an incredible marriage and we're so close and we're so, we're so intimate and we love each other. But there is still this distance that's just between people. You know what I mean? You can, you, just, you can only get so close because still, even when you're in a relationship, there's still this idea of like, I'm being supportive husband right now. Or, you know, like I'm trying to be fun guy. Or, you know what I mean? I'm trying to forgive her for saying the mean thing or whatever. And so there's these, still these little faces that we can, put, uh, we can put on all the time. And so there's still this like stress uh, but just because people can't get that close. I, I, feel, I feel like so, like I'm the only one here. Am I, does this make any sense? Okay. I just, I just feel like there is a lot of, um, even around people who spend their life around other people, there's a lot of loneliness that can be on the inside of people's hearts because there's not people who ever come in and live on the reality of like who you really are. And it's very rare to have a relationship where you just truly lay everything bare. Where, where you're not trying to be one way, you're not trying to be another way, where just everything that I've ever done good is just out. I'm not trying to be like humble. I'm just letting it, I'm just letting it all hang out. Everything that I've done that's bad, I just let it hang out. Every time that I have been the victim, I don't hide any of that. The, the, like the hard, harsh, dirty, painful parts of who I am and continue to be like, it's just, it's just open for, it, for you to see. It's very rare. All the times that I was the criminal, every time I was the one who made other victims, it's just out for you to see. So I think uh, back to my original analogy, think about the Russian uh, subway where there's people around you and you live your whole life in community. Most of us live our whole lives in community, but there's still this protective shell where we're just being aware of how we're coming off to other people all the time. Next slide. Many of us go through our entire life never having the experience of being truly known and truly seen. Truly known and truly seen. And I think many of us think, even in a room like this, you think the only reason that you guys accept me is because there's huge parts of me that I'm holding back, that I'm not choosing uh, to let in yet. And let's just say uh, this should be obvious. That's oftentimes actually true. That if we were to all show ourselves, all the, if, all of our, uh, if all of our sin was just laid bare, every skeleton you have in your closet was just suddenly written on your forehead right now, well, we'd probably all find a new church. And so, so I'm not trying to say that like, we shouldn't be that, but I'm just trying to establish this idea of we all live in this separation from other people. And no matter how intimate the friendship, no matter how intimate the relationship, you can live your life being incredibly lonely and never feeling like you're truly known or truly seen. Okay, so John chapter 4, 
I'm going to sit down because we're going to do a tiny, tiny uh, Bible study. John chapter 4, verse 4. These are very uh, memorable scriptures, I'm sure, for a lot of you. Here we go. And it says this. Now he, talking about Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. He, uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Uh, Jacob's, uh, what did I write there? Jacob's. Well, oh, excuse me, I have a typo here. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, uh, tired as he was from the journey, sat, by, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Okay, so you all know this, that Jesus was on a journey. Uh, he was, it was getting kind of heated with the Pharisees at this time in the story. So Jesus decided he was going to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. It's a little bit of a journey. And to do that, he had to ha- pass through this place called Samaria. It was noon, and he was hot, and so he was getting tired. The disciples, they decide to go into town. Jesus stays outside, and he sits down by a well. The noonday sun is beating on his head, so he's getting hot. He's getting thirsty, and there comes this woman, and she walks up, and she gets water. I think about running water. It's quite the miracle. Uh, just pipes running straight into your house. You just turn the faucet on whenever you want. Uh, back in the day, if you wanted water to, to bathe or to cook or to clean or to, what's another one? Drink. Oh, that's okay. You, yeah, it's a big one. You had, to, you had to go to the well. So these people were always going to the well. So there was this woman, and she had a water pot. And Jesus comes to her and says this, hey, give me a drink. And you all know that story, but I don't want you to miss the controversy that's happening in this story. There's a lot of things that are, there's a lot of rules here that Jesus is breaking by talking to this woman. Uh, Next slide, I've got a list. These three different reasons, these are three different uh, reasons that this story is kind of controversial. Number one is this, we're talking about a woman. And I find it amazing when I read about church history, how unbelievably invisible women were in the Jewish culture. It's still shocking to me how they just didn't have a place uh, in society. And I I think it's incredible that in John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the woman in the well, this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has, get ready for this, in the entire Bible. There's no other time where you see Jesus having a longer conversation than he's having with with this woman. And I love that it wasn't with other men, it wasn't with his disciples, it was just with this simple lady who was overlooked by her culture. Jesus was being really controversial. Secondly, this woman is not only a woman, but this was a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans, uh, briefly, they were related to the Jews, but they had a different ethnicity. And their faith had come out of the Jewish faith, but it kind of morphed into something else. So these were people who had a different ethnicity and a people who had a different religion. And there was, if you don't know, there was a lot of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, if I'm being totally honest, they hated each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. There was deep-rooted hostility. If you were trying to think about a modern-day example, you might think about the Israelis and the Palestinians. You might think that this is kind of similar uh, to what's happening here. Thirdly, so not only was it a woman who was a Samaritan, but they were talking at the well. And not just any well, they were talking in, at Jacob's well. And for you Old Testament scholars, you probably know one thing that's true about wells repeatedly in the Old Testament, and it's this, that in the Old Testament, meeting at the well means romance. This is where romance happens at the well. Uh, Isaac meets Rebecca at the well. 
Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Moses meets Zipporah at the well. So there's always romance happening at the well. So I just think it's amazing that not only is Jesus talking to a Samaritan who happens to be a woman, he was also talking to her at the well, which instantly means romance. So he's doing like a super taboo thing. And of course, you have to understand that it, there was a romance happening here, but not in the way that you were expecting it. It's not, it's not Jesus having a romance with this woman. It's about God having a romance with the outcast is the story because God has always loved the Samaritans. God has always loved the outsiders. God has always loved uh, the outcasts. And so it's just an amazing thing, Jesus being amazingly controversial in going and asking this lady uh, this question. And so when the disciples come back, they're not saying, hey, Jesus, what did you, why, why were you talking to the Samaritan woman at the well? That was kind of weird. They were thinking like, what the flip were you doing talking to that Samaritan woman at the flippin' well. It probably didn't say flippin', but it was an, a, a, a shockingly controversial thing that he was doing. So anyways, Jesus goes, Jesus goes, and he says this to her. He says, hey, give me a drink. And she's surprised. She's surprised that Jesus would even stoop down to speak to her. Obviously, she carries some hostility towards Jews and probably carried a little bit of hostility towards men as well. And so she looks to Jesus and says this, well, how about that? Well, how about, how, about, how about this, that there's, a, that there's a Jewish man coming and talking to a Samaritan woman? How could you do that? And Jesus comes and he says this, hey, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink. And, if he, and when you do that, he would give you living water. And he goes on and he says this, and when you drink of this living water, you would never be thirsty again and you would have eternal life, is what Jesus says. So the woman says, all right, fine, well, give it to me. Well, give, right, give me this water. And just so, by the way, the woman seems perfectly intelligent. So I don't think she's thinking that this is like some magic water where if she drinks it, she'll just magically never be thirsty. Again, I think she understands the metaphor. That she says, well, you know, this is my life up till now, coming up to this well. This is my life. So if you have a new way of life, well, give it to me. So Jesus says, all right, fine. All right, fine. Well, go get your husband. And the woman says, funny. You should mention that because I actually uh, don't have a husband right now. And Jesus says, well, that's right. I believe you've had five husbands. And now the man that you're living with, uh, well, he's just, he's just a guy that you're living with. It's not your husband. And the woman says this, well, I perceive that you are a prophet. She says, so uh, I found this interesting. I was doing a little bit of research, and this is something that I've never known up until yesterday about this story. But I read it and I thought it was amazing that in this culture, uh, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. Did anybody know that? It's amazing. Oh, oh, okay. A few of you did. Okay. But I didn't, I never knew that you were not allowed as a woman to divorce your husband in this culture. So we don't know exactly what happened to this woman, but we do know that she did not initiate five divorces with five different men. Uh, so I think we should just get rid of the idea that this is like some floozy lady, you know what I mean? He's just like, keep going around to different guys or whatever, because that's not the way that this culture would have worked. Instead, I think you find yourself with some kind of interesting options. Number one is this, maybe she had five husbands and they all walked away from her. And she's been left five different times. And if you can imagine, um, if you can enter into the story a little bit and see how maybe that would feel. 
Maybe, maybe another one is this. Maybe she's been widowed five times. Maybe you can enter into the story and think how that would feel. Maybe a combination of both, most likely. Maybe you can remember there, there's this tradition that when the husband is killed, well, the wife just gets passed down to the brother. So maybe she was just kind of passed down uh, the line a few times. I wonder if you could enter into the story and think how maybe uh, that would feel. But it's amazing when Jesus identifies this lady's struggle, there's no sense of judgment. There's no, there's no commentary that he gives at the end of this prophecy. There's no incredible life lesson that he has come uh, to bring her. I believe this. The whole point of what Jesus was trying to do here is he just wants the woman to know that he sees her and that he knows her. And of course, we don't know how this happened here with the five husbands. We, fi- we figure it had to be pretty tragic, and it had to be pretty painful, especially for the woman. Um, and it wouldn't be a part of her that I think she would show everybody. It wouldn't, you know, when she's having conversations with people, this wouldn't be the thing that she would start with. In fact, this might be, if you could look in your own heart, that secret pain on the inside of you. This is, this is representative of this woman's pain. And Jesus, in a moment... He comes through and he cuts through the facade and he cuts through the small talk of Christianity and all the things that we say to each other that don't even matter and all the relationships that we pretend to have that don't mean anything. And he comes and he instantly connects with the real her in a way that another person never could. So, he, so she comes and she says, well, I see that you are a prophet. And instantly she does what I think a lot of us do. She instantly tries to switch a heart conversation to something a little bit more comfortable. She tries to switch to theology. She say, so she says this, well, hey, well, I've got a question for you then, since you're a prophet. You Jews, well, you guys uh, go to Jerusalem to worship in your big, fancy temple. But, but, uh, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, well, those guys, they worshiped on these mountains right here. So what do you got to say about that? So, you know, Jesus humors her. So he answers the question. He says, well, I could see that you're a little confused. You, you, uh, you worship in a way that's confusing to you. Uh, we worship the way that we know how. But then he switches the conversation and he says this, but there's a time that's coming where the kingdom of God isn't going to be about places and mountains and temples. And that's all going away. And there's something totally new coming. And there's, God is raising up a people that is going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I just love that because I feel like what he's saying is this. There's a day that's coming where it's not going to matter uh, where you're born, what your nationality is, what your gender is, your financial status, slave or free, that none of that matters. It's not these people versus these people anymore. Instead, Jesus is coming and declaring that he is the savior of the whole world. And everyone who would come under the banner of Jesus Christ, we come not as this hierarchy, but we all come as equals. Just like we talked about last week. We all come uh, getting the same pay, even though none of us deserve uh, any of it. We all come uh, as brothers and sisters, all on the same level. I just think it's a a beautiful thing. Verse 25 uh, says this, The woman said to him, talking about Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, funny you should mention this Christ guy. That's interesting that you would say that. Because I am he. He says, the one who is speaking to you. So the woman freaks out. She realizes that what she's, who she's talking to is the Messiah. She runs back to town. She's so excited that she leaves her water pot. 
Verse 29, she says this to the people back in her hometown. She says this, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. And here's the question, and I love it. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? I think it's such, a, such an amazing uh, thing that what she is saying when she's bragging about this incredible encounter is she's saying, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Skip down to verse 39, and then we'll be done with the reading. So many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony, which was, he reiterates, uh, he told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. We actually did a full sermon on that last phrase, the Savior of the world. But here's my point. Here's my point in all of this story, and it's kind of a weird message. I'm still at... I still feel like I'm kind of finding it a little bit. But Jesus' main strategy with this girl was not to just come and debate theology, which is something that I love to do too much. That wasn't his strategy in coming and winning her over to his side. He doesn't come with some miraculous miracle to try to impress her with like amazing visuals. Uh, what, what does he do that changes this woman's life? Well, you can, find, you can find it based on what she goes back to her hometown and says. She says this, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And I just think it's amazing that he, what he communicates to this lady is this, that she is truly known by him. And that's the thing that changes her heart and all the shame and all the embarrassment and all the unworthiness that this woman would feel uh, in in communities, especially uh, God-fearing communities, it just doesn't matter. And he was able to come and, and come closer than anybody ever could. And I, I just think it's an amazing thought that everybody thinks they know what kind of God they want. Everybody thinks they, everybody thinks they know what God should do. If they were God, here's what I would do. They think that God should come and make our life perfect and destroy our enemies and fix all of our problems. But I think and you can see this in, in, uh, even in Jesus' times. People were expecting the Messiah when the Messiah comes. They were expecting him to come on, on a white horse, a crusader, who would instantly go to war with the oppressors and free everyone. Of course, we know that Jesus would be and continues to be a mighty warrior, but he's a mighty warrior in a different way, in the way of the cross, in the way of self-sacrificial love. But Jesus was not the God and continues to not be the God people were expecting him to be. Because, and, and, he, and I think he heals us in ways that oftentimes we're not uh, expecting. And instead, Jesus goes to this woman, and he brings this woman redemption in just cutting through the facade. This is his simple plan. He cuts through the facade, and he communicates to her that he knows her, and he accepts her. And I think it's just a, such a profound message for today that even if you don't let anybody in, even if you have lived your whole life where you feel like you are surrounded by people yet somehow frighteningly alone, I just find there's so much beauty and so much healing in remembering that God not only knows you, but he accepts you. And he's not, he's not, he's not looking at you based on like, people, people say this, the reason that God loves us so much is because he sees us not what we're, because not what we are, but he sees us for our potential. I think that's just like the biggest pile of crap ever. Like, sorry, Owen. 
crud. Oh, he's uh, dead. He said he was sorry. Okay. okay. But, I, but I do think that people oftentimes, when they think about the love of God, they think that the love of God is this thing that we can receive when we finally live up to our potential. And I just, I just like to come back and remember this place that right now in this very moment, he sees you in a way that no one else sees you. And those things that you have never shared with anybody in your entire life, he sees you and knows you completely. And yet at the same time, at the exact same time, you're completely loved. And it's amazing, you can see this woman, it, that this, she has probably the most successful ministry uh, in all of the Gospels, if you think about it. Uh, Jesus would always send out his disciples to go to these towns and like preach the gospel. They would have varying degrees of success and failure, mostly failure. Uh, but man, this woman, she turned all, she didn't know anything. She didn't, she didn't know the Apostles' Creed. She didn't know, she didn't know anything. All she knew was that there was a God who came and told her everything she ever knew. All she did was come to a city and communicate that there was a God who knew her. That there was a God who was able to look and penetrate through all of our fake, silly weirdness and come and, and, and see who we really are and we still feel his acceptance. And she turned a whole city upside down. And I just think that, that God, the God that people are looking for, even if you don't know it, even if you, maybe you're just thinking, man, I'm searching for God knows what. I don't even know what I'm looking for. I just feel like I'm searching for something. I feel like people, even if you don't know it, I feel like, next slide, you're looking for a God who sees you, a God who knows you, a God who accepts you, and even a God who loves you. And not for what maybe one day you'll be. That he, he doesn't love you for who you're supposed to be, all the opportunities that you had and you never took. Just think of yourself right now. There's a time to grow, and there's a time before that time where we just come in and we just receive the approval of God. And I just think that there's, there's so much freedom and power and beauty and redemption in remembering that, man, there's a part of me that only Jesus sees. Even, even, even my incredible wife and this amazing relationship that he has given me, there's still a piece of David that's not known by anybody but God. And he sees me exactly for who I am, and at the same time, he loves me. So back to the original analogy where we're going through our life hiding, and we feel this fear of, man, if I really showed myself to people, they would reject me. You, this is the world that we live in. Meanwhile, the power of the gospel comes and says, God sees you for who you really are and loves you anyway. I just want that to really sink in. I know it's a, a simple thought, but let it sink in that he sees everything about you. Even the parts of you that you don't like to think about. He sees everything about you, and you are completely loved. Jesus comes to this woman, and he has no lecture for her. He has no commentary. He has no, well, now that we've established that I'm the Messiah, let's talk about what you did wrong in these five relationships. And then maybe we can enter into some relationship. No, it's, it's none of that. She didn't need a lecture. She just needed to hear God, who sees everything, communicate to her in love. And one of the things that I, I love about this story, I just think it's so amazing. When Jesus comes and he offers her the living water, th there's no contingencies. 
There's no strings attached. It's just, it's just him asking this question. Do you want this? That's his question. Here, I'm offering you something. Do you want this? And I feel like that's the question that he is asking a lot of us in our lives every single day. It's not, can you do all these things and then somehow some magic is going to happen. He's just simply asking you this question. Do you want this? Do you want him? And if you want him, then you can have him. I just feel like we live in such, so many people live in such a desperate need to be seen and to be known. Can I get the band to come up? And I think some of us don't even realize that we live in this world where what would be so healing to our hearts would to, under, to, to truly understand that we are seen by somebody and that we're known by somebody. I, I could be the only person in this room, but I feel like there's so much of me that I can never communicate to people. You ever, you ever just try talking to people and you just feel like they just don't get it? You're trying to communicate how you're feeling and it's just like, I'm out of here. I'm sure every wife in here feels that all the time. <laughs> there's just so much beauty and there's so much redemption in understanding this, that God knows you perfectly and he sees you perfectly and he approves of you and he accepts you and he loves you. My title was uh, The Need to Be Known, and I think that's a need that we all share that's only found in Jesus. I think, I think all of us, all of humanity, I, I really believe this, suffers to a certain extent a feeling of loneliness, even when they're surrounded by people. This feeling of loneliness that um, can only be found in him because no person in the world, no matter how great a marriage there's people that they'll never be able to get close enough. There's always this distance. But the beautiful idea is that God comes in and he sees through all the masks and he loves us unconditionally. And I, know I'm, I know I'm leaning pretty hard in on this point, but I just feel like there's lots of people, even people, people in this room tonight, lots of you, that have a desperation in your heart that it's more profound and more broken than you would even know how to talk about. You don't even know how to put your finger on it, but there's just a feeling of being on a journey by yourself. And I just feel like that's, that's found and that's, that's solved, that's healed by letting Jesus in. We just spend so much time wishing someone would see the real us, and the only person that can truly do that is Jesus. And, and most of the time, we, we don't even believe that. Honestly, it's so easy to say that in church. You know, you, you hear a song or you hear some sermon about, you know, it's, uh, you know, like Jesus loves other people. It's so not, you know, like how he loves, and you're like, man, it's so great. I, I'm so happy that Jesus loves all those other people. You know what I mean? I'm so glad that Jesus accepts all those other people. And then there's part of us, part of our own mind, part of our own story, I don't know, something that says, man, but you don't know me. You don't, you don't know what I am going through. You don't know my story. You don't know where I've been. And if nothing else, it's a simple message tonight. It's just a simple encouragement. But I want you to know this, that no matter where you've been, not only where you've been, no matter where you are, no matter where you are right now, no matter where you're going to be tonight, it doesn't, it, no matter what place you are in the journey of the Christian faith, man, if, if Jesus were to appear to you tonight sitting at your dinner table, and between you and him, laid bare on the table was everything you've ever done. All the missed opportunities, 
all the skeletons in the closet, all the time you've been a half-hearted follower of Jesus Christ, all the times you knew to do the right thing and you didn't, all the things that you would never tell anybody. If all of that, all of you, every, maybe even the parts of you that you really like, but you just never share because you'd be too embarrassed. If all of that was laid bare sitting on the table between you and Jesus, and you looked at him and you looked into his eyes, you would feel his love and forgiveness. He sees us as we really are, and we are completely loved. And we're going to close, as we always do, with communion. And as they pass uh, the communion, I want you to just maybe spend a minute, if you are willing, just spend a minute, just hang on, you guys, I'll tell you when to do it. Um, spend a minute opening your hearts to the God who sees you, to the God who knows you, to the God who accepts you, and to the God who loves you. Just open your heart, and I think there's just such beautiful rest to be found in, in sitting in a moment and not trying to be something other than what you really are. You know what I mean? Like, we, could, we all come in here and we act like we're better Christians than we are, all of us. Um, but I just feel like there's freedom in coming into this room and just resting and not trying to be anything than, than what you really are at this moment. Recognizing that Jesus is not sitting there eager for you to reach your potential to give you his approval. He just wants to give you his approval right now. Warts and all, he sees you exactly as you are, and he loves you completely. So as they pass, just maybe focus on, if you can, spend a minute opening your heart up to him, receiving his approval, and resting in that. Before you take communion, I want to read a, a brief quote from who I consider to be our crazy uncle of the faith, 
We did a whole series on his book, Brennan Manning. He's a, an amazing man. He was a priest, a devout priest who had gave his whole life to this incredible ministry. Uh, later in life, turns into a brutal alcoholic, loses everything. Loses his ministry, loses his marriage. Later in life, he discovers the grace of God and writes some amazing books. And here's Brennan Manning speaking to us, I believe. To be alive is to be broken. And to be broken is to stand in need of grace. Honesty keeps us in touch with our neediness and the truth that we are saved sinners. This is the part that I love. There's a beautiful transparency to honest disciples who never wear a false face and do not pretend to be anything but who they are. Tonight, as we take communion, I want us to recite the Apostles' Creed, but just everything that you do in the Christian faith, remember this, it's about receiving his free gift, him just offering the living water to you, and simply, there's no strings attached, him just saying this, do you want me? And if you want him, you can have him. So let's recite this together. There's three slides. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his holy son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Will you bow your heads and let's pray. Jesus Christ, we know that you see us tonight, warts and all, and there's such a profound need in the human heart, I believe, to simply be known and to be understood and to be accepted. So tonight, we sit in your presence and we simply receive your love. Our souls laid bare, nothing's hidden from you. And that's a good thing. We're not afraid of you knowing. You're welcome. You're welcome to come and investigate us, know everything about us. As we bless this bread and this cup, we honor you as the God who knows us intimately and loves us completely. We're truly known by you, and we rest in that. We know that you love us not for who we are supposed to be, but, who, but for who we are right now, in this very moment. And we rest in your grace and we rest in your love. We say that we believe in you and that we trust in you. We trust in you with our whole lives and we say thank you. So tonight, Father, we remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection. We await your return. We remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection, and we await your return. And to you tonight, my brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying this. This is my body that's broken for you. And this is my blood that's poured out for you. So let's eat the bread and drink from the cup together.
prayer. Father, tonight I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Each of them on a journey, a sacred journey of life, Father. And I, I pray tonight that no matter where they are at, some of them, I, I, I believe this, feel so alone. My prayer is tonight that you would show them that you see them and that you know them. And you're not up there with a lightning bolt waiting for them to do the wrong thing. You're standing there offering living water with no strings attached, simply saying, do you want me? Tonight I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that they would have the courage to turn to you and receive you and rest in that. And even, even just for a moment, stop with the striving, trying to do and be and simply to just exist as your child. Feel your love and feel your grace. We say thank you for that, Lord. And we love you. In your sons, let me pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.